Part two, chapter eight of the Secret City. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Rita Boutros. The Secret City by Hugh Walpole. Part two, chapter eight. And yet, strangely enough, when I lay awake that night in my room on my deserted island, it was of Markovitch that I was thinking. Of all the memories of the preceding evening, that of Markovitch huddled over his food, sullen and glowering, with Semyonov watching him, was predominant. Markovitch was, so to speak, the dark horse of the mall, and he was also, when one came to look at it, all the way round the centre of the story. And yet it was Markovitch with his inconsistencies, his mysteries, his impulses, and purposes, whom I understood least of them all. He makes indeed a very good symbol of my present difficulties. In that earlier experience of Marie, in the forests of Galicia, the matter had been comparatively easy. I had then been concerned with the outward manifestation of war, cannon, cholera, shell, and the green glittering trees of the forest itself but the war had made progress since then it had advanced out of material things into the very soul of men it was no longer the forest of bark and tinder with which the chiefs of this world had to deal but to adapt the russian proverb itself with the dark forest of the hearts of men how much more baffling and intangible this new forest and how deeply serious a business now for those who were still thoughtlessly and selfishly juggling with human affairs there is no ammunition i remember crying desperately in galicia we had moved further than the question of ammunition now i had a strange dream that night i saw my old forest of two years before the very woods of buchach with the hot painted leaves the purple slanting sunlight the smell the cries the whir of the shell but in my dream the only inhabitant of that forest was markovitch he was pursued by some animal what beast it was i could not see always the actual vision was denied to me but i could hear it plunging through the thickets and once i caught a glimpse of a dark crouching body like a shadow against the light but Markovitch I saw all the time, sweating with heat and terror, his clothes torn, his eyes inflamed, his breath coming in desperate pants, turning once and again as though he would stop and offer defiance, then hasting on, his face and hands scratched and bleeding. I wanted to offer him help and assistance, but something prevented me. I could not get to him. Finally he vanished from my sight, and I was left alone in the painted forest. All the next morning I sat and wondered what I had better do, and at last I decided that I would go and see Henry Bowen. I had not seen Bowen for several weeks. I myself had been of late less to the flat in the English prospect, but I knew that he had taken my advice that he should be kind to Nicholas Markovitch with due British seriousness and that he had been trying to bring some kind of relationship about. He had even asked Markovitch to dine alone with him, 
and Markovitch, although he declined the invitation, was, I believe, greatly touched. So about half-past one, I started off for Bohun's office on the Fontanka. I've said somewhere before, I think, that Bohun's work was in connection with the noble but uphill task of enlightening the Russian public as to the righteousness of the war, the British character, and the Anglo-Russian alliance. I say uphill because only a few of the real population of Russia showed the slightest desire to know anything whatever about any country outside their own. Their interest is in ideas, not in boundaries, and what I mean by real will be made patent by the events of this very day. However, Bowen did his best, and it was not his fault that the British government could only spare enough men and money to cover about one inch of the whole of Russia. And, I hasten to add, that if that same British government had plastered the whole vast country, from Archangel to Vladivostok, with pamphlets, orators, and photographs, it would not have altered in the slightest degree after events. To make any effect in Russia, England needed not only men and money, but a hundred years' experience of the country. That same experience was possessed by the Germans alone, of all the Western peoples, and they have not neglected to use it. I went by tram to the Fontanka, and the streets seemed absolutely quiet. That strange shining Nevsky of the night before was a dream. Someone in the tram said something about rifle shots in the summer garden, but no one listened. As Vera had said last night, we had, none of us, much faith in Russian revolutions. I went up in the lift to the propaganda office, and found it a very nice airy place, clean and smart, with colored advertisements by Shepperson and others on the walls, pictures of Hampstead and St. Albans and Kew Gardens, that looked strangely satisfactory and homely to me, and rather touching and innocent. There were several young women clicking away at typewriters, and maps of the Western Front, and a colossal toy map of the London Tube, and a nice English library with all the best books from Chaucer to D. H. Lawrence, and from the Religio Medici to E. V. Lucas, London. Everything seemed clean and simple, and a little deserted, as though the heart of the Russian public had not, as yet, quite found its way there. I think guileless was the adjective that came to my mind, and certainly Burroughs, the head of the place, a large, red-faced, smiling man with glasses, seemed to me altogether too cheerful and pleased with life to penetrate the wicked recesses of Russian pessimism. I went into Bohun's room and found him very hard at work in a serious, emphatic way, which only made me feel that he was playing at it. He had a little bookcase over his table, and I noticed the Georgian book of verse, Conrad's Nostromo, and a translation of Ropshin's Pale Horse. Altogether too pretty and literary, I said to him. You ought to be getting at the peasant with a pitchfork and a hammer, not admiring the intelligentsia. I dare say you're right, he said, blushing. But whatever we do, we're wrong. We have fellows in here cursing us all day. If we're simple, we're told we're not clever enough. If we're clever, we're told we're too complicated. 
If we're militant, we're told we ought to be tender-hearted. And if we're tender-hearted, we're told we're sentimental. And at the end of it all, the Russians don't care a damn. Well, I dare say you're doing some good somewhere, I said indulgently. Come and look at my view, he said, and see whether it isn't splendid. He spoke no more than the truth. We looked across the canal, over the roofs of the city, domes and towers and turrets, gray and white and blue, with the dark red walls of many of the older houses stretched like an Arabian carpet beneath white bubbles of clouds that here and there marked the blue sky. It was a scene of intense peace, the smoke rising from the chimneys, Isvostchik stumbling along on the farther banks of the canal, and the people sauntering in their usual lazy fashion up and down the Nevsky. Immediately below our window was a skating rink that stretched straight across the canal. There were other figures like little dolls skating up and down, and they looked rather desolate beside the deserted bandstands and the empty seats. On the road outside our door, a cart loaded with wood slowly moved along, the high hoop over the horse's back gleaming with red and blue. "'Yes, it is of you,' I said. "'Splendid!' "'And all as quiet as though there had been no disturbances at all. "'Have you heard any news?' "'No,' said Bowen. "'To tell the truth, I've been so busy that I haven't had time to ring up the embassy. "'And we've had no one in this morning.' "'Monday morning, you know,' he added. "'Always very few people on Monday morning. "'As though he didn't wish me to think that the office was always deserted. "'I watched the little doll-like men circling placidly round and round the rink. "'One bubble cloud rose and slowly swallowed up the sun. "'Suddenly I heard a sharp crack like the breaking of a twig. "'What's that?' I said, stepping forward onto the balcony. "'It sounded like a shot. "'I didn't hear anything,' said Bowen. "'You get funny echoes up here sometimes.' "'We stepped back into Bowen's room, "'and, if I had had any anxieties, "'they would at once, I think, have been reassured "'by the unemotional figure of Bowen's typist, "'a gay young woman with peroxide hair, "'who was typing away as though for her very life. "'Look here, Bowen, can I talk to you alone for a minute?' I asked. "'The peroxide lady left us.' "'It's just about Markovitch I wanted to ask you,' I went on. "'I'm infernally worried, and I want your help. "'It may seem ridiculous of me to interfere in another family like this, "'with people with whom I have, after all, nothing to do. "'But there are two reasons why it isn't ridiculous. "'One is the deep affection I have for Nina and Vera. "'I promised them my friendship, and now I've got to back that promise.' and the other is that you and I are really responsible for bringing Lawrence into the family. They never would have known him if it hadn't been for us. There's danger and trouble of every sort brewing, and Semyonov, as you know, is helping it on wherever he can. Well, now, what I want to know is, how much have you seen of Markovitch lately, and has he talked to you? Bowen considered. I've seen very little of him, he said at last. I think he avoids me now. He's such a weird bird that it's impossible to tell of what he's really thinking. I know he was pleased when I asked him to dine with me at the Bear the other night. He looked most awfully pleased, but he wouldn't come. It was as though he suspected that I was laying a trap for him. But what have you noticed about him otherwise? 
Well, I've seen very little of him. He's sulky just now. He suspected Lawrence, of course, always after that night of Nina's party. But I think that he's reassured again. And of course it's all so ridiculous, because there's nothing to suspect, absolutely nothing. Is there? Absolutely nothing, I answered firmly. He sighed with relief. Oh, you don't know how glad I am to hear that, he said, because although I've known that it was all right, Vera's been so odd lately that I've wondered. You know how I care about Vera, and— How do you mean odd? I sharply interrupted. Well, for instance, of course I've told nobody, and you won't tell anyone either. But the other night I found her crying in the flat, sitting up near the table, sobbing her heart out. She thought everyone was out. I'd been in my room, and she hadn't known. But Vera, Durward, Vera, of all people. I didn't let her see me. She doesn't know now that I heard her. But when you care for anyone as I care for Vera, it's awful to think that she can suffer like that, and one can do nothing. Oh, Durward, I wish to God I wasn't so helpless. You know, before I came out to Russia, I felt so old. I thought there was nothing I couldn't do, that I was good enough for anybody. And now I'm the most awful ass. Fancy, Durward, those poems of mine. I thought they were wonderful. I thought— He was interrupted by a sudden sharp crackle, like a fire bursting into a blaze quite close at hand. We both sprang to the windows, threw them open, they were not sealed for some unknown reason, and rushed out onto the balcony. The scene in front of us was just what it had been before— the bubble clouds were still sailing lazily before the blue. The skaters were still hovering on the ice. The cart of wood that I had noticed was vanishing slowly into the distance. But from the Litany, just over the bridge, came a confused jumble of shouts, cries, and then the sharp, unmistakable rattle of a machine-gun. It was funny to see the casual life in front of one suddenly pause at that sound. The doll-like skaters seemed to spin for a moment, and then freeze. One figure began to run over the ice. A small boy came racing down our street, shouting. Several men ran out from doorways and stood looking up into the sky, as though they thought the noise had come from there. The sun was just setting. The bubble clouds were pink, and windows flashed fire. The rattle of the machine-gun suddenly stopped, and there was a moment's silence when the only sound in the whole world was the clatter of the wood-cart turning the corner. I could see to the right of me the crowds in the Nevsky that had looked like the continual unwinding of a ragged skein of black silk, break their regular movement, and split up like flies falling away from an opening door. We were all on the balcony by now, the stout burrows, peroxide, and another lady typist, Watson, the thin and most admirable secretary. He held the place together by his diligence and order. Two Russian clerks, Henry and I. We all leaned over the railings and looked down into the street beneath us. To our left, the Fontanka Bridge was quite deserted. Then suddenly an extraordinary procession poured across it. At the same moment, at any rate it seemed so now to me on looking back, the sun disappeared, leaving a world of pale grey mist shot with gold and purple. The stars were, many of them, already out,
piercing with their sharp cold brilliance the winter sky. We could not at first see of what exactly the crowd now pouring over the bridge was composed. Then, as it turned and came down our street, it revealed itself as something so theatrical and melodramatic as to be incredible. Incredible, I say, because the rest of the world was not theatrical with it. That was always to be the amazing feature of the new scene into which, without knowing it, I was at that moment stepping. In Galicia the stage had been set, ruined villages, plague-stricken peasants, shell-holes, trenches, roads cut to pieces, huge trees leveled to the ground, historic chateaus pillaged and robbed. But here the world was still the good old jog-trot world that one had always known. The shops and hotels and theatres remained as they had always been. There would remain, I believe, forever those dull jagger undergarments in the windows of the bazaar, and the bound edition of Chekhov, in the bookshop just above the Moika, and the turtle, and the goldfish in the aquarium, near Eliseyev, and whilst those things were there I could not believe in melodrama. And we did not believe. We dug our feet into the snow, and leaned over the balcony railings, absorbed with amused interest. The procession consisted of a number of motor lorries, and on these lorries soldiers were heaped. I can use no other word, because, indeed, they seemed to be all piled upon one another, some kneeling forward, some standing, some sitting, and all with their rifles pointing outwards, until the lorries looked like hedgehogs. Many of the rifles had pieces of red cloth attached to them, and one lorry displayed proudly a huge red flag that waved high in air with a sort of flaunting arrogance of its own. On either side of the lorries, filling the street, was the strangest mob of men, women, and children. There seemed to be little sign of order or discipline amongst them, as they were all shouting different cries. Down the Fontanka! No, the Duma! To the Nevsky! No, no, Tovarishji! comrades, to the Nicholas station. Such a rabble was it, that I remember that my first thought was of pitying indulgence. So this was the grand outcome of Boris Grogoff's eloquence, and the rat's plots for plunder, a fitting climax to such vain dreams. I saw the Cossack, that ebony figure of Sunday night, ten such men, and this rabble was dispersed for ever. I felt inclined to lean over and whisper to them, Quick, quick, go home. They'll be here in a moment and catch you. And yet, after all, there seemed to be some show of discipline. I noticed that, as the crowd moved forward, men dropped out and remained picketing the doorways of the street. Women seemed to be playing a large part in the affair, peasants with shawls over their heads, many of them leading by the hand small children. Burroughs treated it all as a huge joke. "'By Jove!' he cried, speaking across to me. "'Derward, it's like that play Martin Harvey used to do. What was it? About the French Revolution, you know?' "'The only way,' said Peroxide, in a prim-strangled voice. "'That's it, the only way, with their red flags and all. Don't they look ruffians, some of them?' There was a great discussion going on under our windows. All the lorries had drawn up together, and the screaming, chattering, and shouting 
was like the noise of a parrot's aviary. The cold blue light had climbed now into the sky, which was thick with stars. The snow on the myriad roofs stretched like a filmy cloud as far as the eye could see. The moving, shouting crowd grew with every moment mistier. "'Oh, dear, Mr. Burroughs,' said the little typist, who was not peroxide, "'do you think I shall ever be able to get home? We're on the other side of the river, you know. Do you think the bridges will be up? My mother will be so terribly anxious.' "'Oh, you'll get home all right,' answered Burroughs cheerfully. "'Just wait until this crowd has gone by. I don't expect there's any fuss down by the river.' His words were cut short by some order from one of the fellows below. Others shouted in response, and the lorries again began to move forward. "'I believe he is shouting to us,' said Bowen. "'It sounded like, "'Get off!' or, "'Get away!' "'Not he,' said Burroughs. "'They are too busy with their own affairs.' Then things happened quickly. There was a sudden strange silence below. I saw a quick flame from some fire that had apparently been lit on the Fontanka Bridge. I heard the same voice call out once more sharply, and a second later I felt rather than heard a whiz like the swift flight of a bee past my ear. I was conscious that a bullet had struck the brick behind me. That bullet swung me into the revolution. End of Part 2 Chapter 8